So we are in Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, we're going to back up just a couple of verses into Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. Uh, last week we talked about the evil and oppression that we would see, that the people were beginning to buy into the evil and oppression of, of the day that they were in, and that there's a promise made at the very end of chapter 59. There's a pivot point there, and it says, uh, at the very end of chapter 59, it says, and as for me, uh, actually I'll start in verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So there is this uh, picture that we have in Isaiah 59 that in the midst of evil and oppression, the wickedness of, of the world that we live in, that there will be one who comes and he will come to Zion and he will be a redeemer. We talked about that just briefly last week. And then when we talk about Isaiah 60, there's this pivot point in Isaiah 59, 20, and 21 that we get to this idea of this is what happens when the Redeemer comes to the people of God for the sake of the world. But then there's this picture in Isaiah 60 of what will come at the very end of the age. What will come in heaven? What can we look forward to eternally? Now, when you're thinking about Isaiah and you're thinking about prophecy, oftentimes Isaiah is giving a prophecy in this particular section of what will happen, a futuristic prophecy. And you have to determine in the midst of Isaiah, are, are we talking about something that's immediate, that's going to happen very soon? Uh, and, and what I mean by very soon is like in the next 100 or 200 years. Uh, meaning that will the, the, the captives be led out of Babylon? Will they be restored and will temple worship be restored? Or are they talking about the first coming of Jesus, or are they talking about the second coming of Jesus? And I'm not trying to confuse you. Uh, but when you come to prophecy, you're trying to ascertain or discern in your mind, what is the prophet speaking of? Is he talking about a near-term fulfillment, uh, a, a sort of a, a longer-term fulfillment, or the ultimate fulfillment that we see in the heavens, in the earth? And what we find in Isaiah 60 is we find this idea that this is a picture of what it will be like when we are in glory with the Father. Now, how do we get that? How do we get that? We actually get that from the very end of verse 19 of chapter 60. And I'm going to read the whole section here in a second. But just to give you some, some flavor or context. In verse 19 of chapter 60, it says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. Now, that is clearly something at the end of the age, at the end of the world, not something that is near term. And it says, your sun shall, be, shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, that is a picture, I believe, of the idea of the end of the age when Jesus will come and he will consummate his kingdom and he will rule and reign forever in righteousness and bring peace and righteousness to all those who trust and believe in him. So Isaiah 60 initially begins with this idea of if we have trusted and believed in the Redeemer, then there's a call upon our lives, but not only a call upon our lives, but there's also the hope of glory that we have in the future. So a call upon our lives, but then also the hope of glory for the future. That's where we are in the midst of Isaiah. Isaiah is trying to give a hope-filled message to the people of God who are struggling in a world that is twisted and distorted because of sin. That's where we find ourselves. So, um, 
If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 60. It just seems like I should ask you to do this because in in verse 1 it says, Arise. So the verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see that they all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. You never thought you'd be that happy about that, did you? You know, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news to the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with my with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom, they will not serve you, that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. May the Lord add His blessing to the Word. You may be seated. So, here's the idea that we have as we work our way through Isaiah chapter 60. Initially, there's this sense in which we are called to arise, and the, and the, and the command there that arise, shine, is actually literally, He is calling us to be light. So it's arise and be light wherever you are. 
And it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. So, or to be light. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, we see this in verse 2, where it says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples. So that darkness, and, and theologically, biblically, darkness is not your friend. I mean, darkness is, is um, ignorance, it is sinfulness, it is evil. You know, we read about this, those who walk in darkness. You know, those who walk in darkness are those who are ignorant of the truth, who actually want to hurt others and bring evil to bear in their own lives and the lives of others. Uh, but they're also um, transgressing God's laws. And when we transgress God's laws, His good laws, His goodness and righteousness, that's said to be sin. And so there's this sense in which that we are called to be light. Now, it's interesting, though, because the question arises, do we have any light to shine in and of ourselves? And I think the answer is no, <laughs> because we are sinners born in sin. And so the light that we have is actually similar to what the moon does to us. You know, the moon has no light intrinsic of itself, but rather when we see the moon, it is the light of the sun reflecting off of the moon so that we can see it. Now, in the same way, when it says, arise and shine and be light, what we're saying there is that we need to be reflecting the glory of, of, of God. And as a matter of fact, in, in verse 2, it says, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. So it's not glory that is intrinsic to who you are, but rather it is a foreign glory, a glory of, of the Father that we actually emanate from us, that we radiate this or we, we reflect it, right? Like this is the idea, that we reflect the glory of God to the world. And the world is living in darkness. And the nations shall come to your light. Look at verse 3. It says, And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The, the idea there is that the light that is not inherent of us is coming from the Father. And when we think about the light and what we trust and believe in, it is turning our face to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. So that as we turn ourselves to this glory, that those around us would see the glory that is reflecting off of our face. I mean, this is, this is in, in a similar way, uh, the transfiguration. You know, there, there, was, there was glory uh, that you know, Jesus and Elijah and Moses had, and, then, and the disciples were, almost had to hide their eyes. Or it's the glory that Moses had, and he actually had to cover himself because of the glory that is reflected upon him, that he would wear a veil. And so we are called to reflect the glory of God, and when we do that, um, because we have faith in our Savior. Now, when we look at you know, Isaiah 59, uh, verse 20, it says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. Well, who is that Redeemer? Well, that Redeemer is Jesus, and this is what we believe. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He has redeemed us in that way. Or in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, I'll start in, um, it's speaking about Jesus, our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawless, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. So the idea is that, that we once lived in darkness, and Jesus, our Redeemer, has come, and He has saved us. And as we look to Jesus, as we pursue Jesus, as we love the Father and have a reconciled relationship to Him, and as we, you know, again, pursue Jesus, we reflect the glory of the Lord to those around us. Now, here's what I mean by that. Have you ever been around somebody who loved Jesus so much that you could not help but be encouraged by being around them? That, that they, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of circumstances that were, were hard for them, that they continued to have faith and encourage others to follow Jesus. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen people you know, hospitalized and, and almost ready to breathe their last breath. And, and when I go to visit them in the hospital, they will actually ask, how can I pray for you? I mean, they're they are literally about to open their eyes for the, for the very last time or close their eyes for the last time and see Jesus. And they're saying, how, Pastor, how can I pray for you? What do you need? And I'm just amazed when I sometimes when I'll go to a hospital visit and I come back blessed because of the glory that is reflected in the life and faith of that individual. There's a, there's a story uh, this happened probably in the late 1800s um, that there was a, a man in Wall Street and he was getting on a streetcar in New York. And as he got on the streetcar, he was sitting there and the streetcar stopped and a little boy who was probably about 11 or 12 years old uh, on, on crutches uh, got onto the streetcar. And as he got onto the streetcar, you could tell that he was wincing in pain and he was struggling to get onto the streetcar. And he finally got onto the streetcar, he put his crutches around, and he was able to stretch out his leg that was crippled and broken. And as, um, as the, the, the car stopped, um, uh, some other people got on and off, and, and he found himself next door, next to this, this, this little boy. And as he's looking at this little boy, this little boy is smiling at everyone else around him, and he's humming the hymn, Rock of Ages. And, and, he, and, the, and the man says, you know, that's one of my favorite hymns. Why are you humming that? He goes, I sing or hum hymns when my leg is hurting. And the man says, well, is there any hope for your leg? He says, no, I was born like this. My, my leg is like this. I was born like this. I'll have crutches the rest of my life. He goes, but, but singing the hymn reminds me that I have a good father. And he does good for his people. And that this leg is meant to be good for me. So I'm reminded about always singing of what my father has for me. And, and, and that man said, you know, I will never forget that. That despite whatever God gives me, it must be for my good and his glory. And so even in the midst of this little boy shining the light of his faith, you know, is emanating out. And so when we think about this, this, this idea of being light, I think that there's a couple ways that we can interpret that or a couple ways that we can think about that. You know, one is that we need to be shining light to other people who are also Christians. Like, I don't know if you know this, but when you come to Jesus, all your worldly problems do not cease immediately. <laughs> you guys know that, right? And in the midst of that, we need the, the hope of glory reflected in the lives of each other to to persevere, to be encouraged. You know, when relationships falter, when, when disease happens, when there's uncertainty you know, for, for jobs and, and family, like we need other Christians around us 
to be reflecting the glory of Christ and the hope of glory. Not in a, a trite way, but in a way that we, we are reminded of the promises of God so that we can continue to put one foot forward in front of the other. We need that. We need other believers in our lives to be reflecting the glory of Christ. But not only do we need it as believers, an encouragement as believers, but in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In verse 4 it says, Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together and they come to you. There is this idea that shining and being the light of the world that we are called to be, reflecting the glory of Christ, is actually how other nations and people will be drawn to the Savior. Now, let me break it down just a little bit so that we understand this. Um, How do we be light to those around us? Now, now think about it. There might be words of kindness in the midst of difficulty, words of encouragement to those around us. Now, this is, I'm talking about our, our children, our neighbors, our coworkers. This is what it looks like so that we are emanating the glory of Christ to the world around us so that the nations will be attracted to the gospel. Now, think about this. Um, with words of life, words about what is true with regard to Jesus, but also just kind words. One of, the, one of the greatest ways that you can be countercultural today is actually speaking words of encouragement rather than grumbling or complaining. I mean, think about it. When we speak well of our spouses, we are radiating the glory of Christ to the world. Because i got to tell you, in the workplace, in the world, most of what people talk about their spouses is grumbling and complaining. Your wives... Speak well of your husband. Husbands, speak well and encourage you know, your wives, but also speak well of, you know, around other non-believers and radiate the love of Christ that you have for each other because that's different. And what will happen, and I promise you this is going to happen, if you have a good, oh, I'm saying, if you have a great marriage, if you have a great marriage, those around you will see it, and at some point they will often say, How? How do you have a good marriage? How do you have a great marriage? How can you be married for 50 years and still walk hand in hand with your spouse? Or how can you be married happily for five years and not feel like it's all going to be for naught? How do you continue to love each other? That is an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. Because the only way that you can continually love your spouse in the midst of marriage, which, by the way, is super hard, okay? Super hard. is through the love of Christ and the forgiveness that you have received and the forgiveness that you can then extend because you understand the forgiveness of Christ. You will have opportunities to radiate the glory of Christ through your marriage. Do that. But it's not only words or kind words, it could also be kind actions. So how do we reflect the glory of Christ? It's by serving and pursuing works of mercy and grace in the midst of our communities. How do we do that? How do we help the poor? How do we encourage the weak? How do we build up those who are struggling? 
Well, one of the ways we do that is by getting outside of ourselves and our own little world and thinking, who can I serve? Rather than thinking, who can serve me? Or, what's more likely, how can I serve myself today? Anybody struggle with that on a regular basis? I mean, how many of you... I'm just raising my hand here, okay, because I, I, I struggle. Like, I want to serve myself almost every day, right? And I have to war against that to think about how can I serve others rather than just serve myself. And when we do that, when we serve others, we are reflecting the glory of Christ like the moon reflects the, the, the light of the sun. And that gives us opportunities. So again, you know, it's be light, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's the Lord's glory, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I mean, there's this, this, this idea that we are so in love with Jesus and what He has done, and we look to the Father for everything that we have in such a way that our faces are turned towards Him so that the reflection of His glory goes out and the nations will see and the nations will come. Now, besides be light, I want you to think about it in this way, is that we are also to have hope. And I want you to see that the hope that we have from verses 4 all the way down to the end of verse 60. I mean, what, what do we see? You know, Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. Notice in verse 4 the diversity of cultures that occurs you know, at the end of the age. That, that the nations come. Then you, you will see, like, the nations shall come. Your sons and daughters shall come from afar. And these are not that you've lost your sons and daughters, but these are new um, image bearers of Christ who, who have loved Jesus, who have believed in the Father, and they are being gathered in from all over the place. And this is not only will they, they come, but, but look at where they're coming from. It says, you know, from Midian, they will bring their young camels. A multitude of camels shall cover you. And you're like, hmm, not too sure about that. But basically, it's the wealth and, and, the, um, and, and the beauty of, of the best that the cultures have to bring. You know, so, so what we hear, see there is, is a list of the very best of the world coming and worshiping and serving the Lord. That nations will come and worship. You know, one of the things that we have to be careful about, or, or one of the things that you hear today, is that Christianity is, is really sort of a, 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 a monolithic culture that occurs. But that's just not true. Your know, Christianity transcends culture. I mean, when we get to heaven, I mean, I, I mean, I think that some people, maybe people who are descended from Europeans will think that when we get to heaven, we'll only be hearing the pipe organ, you know? And there, there are people today who think that, right? Like, that, that'll be the best. That'll be po- but I'm here to tell you, nope, it's not going to be like that. I mean, you're going to hear instruments from all around. You're going to hear the steel drums from, from Bahamas. You're going to hear, you know, uh, instruments that you had no idea that you had actually ever seen. And actually what we find is that, you know, in verse 8, um, at verse 6 and 7, it says, All the multitude of camels, young camels, they'll come from Sheba and gold and frankincense and, and, from, and the flocks of Kedar and the rams of Nebo. These are the very best. But in verse 8, it says this, Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their window? Essentially, what Isaiah is saying is, I see all the beauty of the cultures of the world coming, and I can't even describe it. I've never seen this before. I've never seen anything like this before. 
It's like when you're um, a small child and you go to the zoo and maybe you would never, can you imagine you're the first people who ever saw an elephant for the first time? And they're like, what is that? Like, that's incredible. Let me get out of the way. Um, Like this thing's going to, you know, for the very first time. And so what Isaiah is saying is, I can't even describe all of the cultures and races and nations and coastlands that will come to the Lord at the end of the age. And it will be beautiful. And the multicultural diversity is meant to be a wonderful thing. And that the gospel will transcend culture in such a way that people's hearts are changed. And he says this question, who are these people? And in verse 9, there's an answer. For the coastlands shall hope for me. And the coastlands is another word in the Old Testament for the farthest reaches of the world. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. They'll bring silver and they'll bring gold. And then, and then and in verse 10 it says, Foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. Now, there's this sense in which when we get to heaven, we will not be floating around, but we will be embodied people. Our souls will have a new body. And what will we do with our new body? We will be serving the king. We will be building his kingdom. We will be planting. We will be vine dressers. We'll be farmers. We'll be uh, building and constructing. And it will be a beautiful place that we will actually serve. Now, that's actually thinking about the idea of redeeming work. Work will not be hard, but it will be good. You know, but these foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. And in verse 11, speaking about this idea of, of, of heaven, and, and John picks this up in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to turn there in a second. It says, Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So there's two ideas there. One of which is that gates that are open in the midst of the new Jerusalem, the new city of God, it's this, is they can stay open because there's nothing to fear, because they don't need protection from anyone. But secondly, these gates are flung open to all of the nations, saying nations, all the nations come in. And this is a, f- a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 11, you know, or Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, where Abraham has promised that through his progeny, through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so the doors to king, the kingdom, the doors to the kingdom of heaven are thrust open, and it says, come. I mean, this is, um, quite frankly, I mean, this is the gospel call that we also read in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, where it says, you know, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The doors of the kingdom of heaven are flung open, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Now, the gates being continually open. I mean, all of that occurring, the glory of Lebanon, we continue to see the nation and the kingdoms coming. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Those are three different types of trees. So what we see is there's there's this beautiful, you know, better than bush gardens, better than Disney World, better than the arboretums. It's saying that the God will take the very best of the world and we will be planting those things within the kingdom of God. Now, if you would turn over to Revelation chapter 21, I want to show you this. Because I think that the the Apostle John is borrowing this language when he speaks about the new heavens and the new earth. Speaking specifically about the new Jerusalem. 
I'll, I'll begin in verse 22 and I'll go through 22 verse 5. In, in verse 22 of Revelation 21, it says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, we see that also in Isaiah 60. We're about to get there. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Does that sound like something we just read in Isaiah chapter 60? And its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the Lamb's book of life, that's attributed to you know, the um, Jesus and trusting in Him. If, you're, if you believe in Jesus, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me, and this is the beauty of, of New Jerusalem, the river of life. And, and then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life and its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, that's what we're speaking of when we speak about Isaiah chapter 60. John is borrowing language from Isaiah 60, saying, When Jesus comes, this is what this will happen. The glory and the, and the wealth of the nations will pour in. And as they pour in, we will see all the people of the world who have trusted and believed in the Savior come in. Now, um, just to encourage you a little bit more, you know, it, I mean, sometimes you read stuff in the Old Testament and you're like, uh, I don't know if that's really what I want to do. You know, but in verse 16, it says, You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. Let me explain that. Okay? What that means is, is that they will give their very best, their, their sustenance, what they have to offer, is that the people of God will benefit of the greatest and the best of the world. What the world has to offer. And it says, in, in, at the end of verse 16, And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And, and what he says in verse 17 is he says, and I'm going to blow apart all of your expectations. He goes, everything that you were expecting to get, it will be better. Like all of us have this picture of heaven, right? This picture of what will happen. And what verse 17 says is, when you expect, um, when you expect bronze, I will bring gold. And, I will, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters masters righteousness. What he's saying there is, think about what you think heaven will be like, and when you get there, it will be better than what you ever expected. You know, oftentimes, you know, when, um, when we just finished up Christmas sometimes, everybody's thinking like, oh man, I hope I get this, I hope I get this, I hope I get this, and you get something, and it doesn't quite measure up to your expectations, Right? But you know, you're nice and you're, and you're kind and you say thank you anyway, right? What God is saying in verse 17 is that I will exceed all your expectations in the future. 
You're thinking it's just going to be bronze? It's going to be gold. You think it's going to be iron and it's going to be silver. It's going to be better than anything that you can ever imagine. But not only that, like these, think about this, and he's undoing this at the very end because there's, there's this tension here. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. So essentially what he's saying there is that peace and righteousness will rule and reign in the midst of heaven. Violence shall be no more heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. I mean, I mean that's, a verse to, that's a verse to dwell on. When we think about some of the evil and the twisting of our laws and, and the wickedness of evil men that we live around, and that violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders, and you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. I mean, that's one to memorize. Because I, I know that in the midst of this, this broken world, we feel as if um, there can be mourning and lamenting and sadness over and over. And yet the constant is that God is there and He is good and He will redeem all those who trust in Him. And He will take away all these things. And the sun shall be no more and the light of the Father will give light to all of us. And your people, in verse 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. There's this sense in which, in verse 21, that is a yearning that we have and that is the yearning for security. Yeah, we want to have something that will never end. I mean, this is like Willy Wonka and the everlasting gobstopper, right? I mean, that's just a picture of us having something that will never go away, that we will always have, and that will be constant. And there's this idea that they shall possess the land forever. Because sometimes when you get to a place, you're like, well, how long do I have here? When do I have to leave? Or is it all going to fall apart? And what God is saying is, like, when you get to heaven, it will never fall apart. It will go on forever. My promises will endure, and you will be in peace forever. And I can't even fathom that. Because, I mean, some of you have this perspective on life. Not, not all of you, but some of you. When life is going really, really well, you're just waiting for the hammer to drop. You're wondering, man, I feel good. I'm, I'm, I'm having a great day. All of these things. When is it all going to turn? And when is the hammer going to drop? And what this says is, in heaven, the hammer will never drop. It will go on forever. And we go, amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. There will come a time when everyone will bend their knee. And we, as the people of God, living before that time, are called to be the light of the world, radiating the light of Christ to those who are living in darkness, with kind words, with kind actions, with the hope of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that as we read your word, we would be encouraged to live a life of faith. 
Father, help us, Lord, to, to trust you, to believe in you, to believe in your promises and to cling to them. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be the light that you have called us to be this week. Father, we, we are surrounded by people that we know that don't know you. So, Father, help us. Give us courage and wisdom and words of insight to bring the gospel to bear. And, Father, for those who are lost and who are looking, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would have opportunities to share the love of Jesus with them. So, Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.